I'm Major Robinson. Leslie Messer. Mary Stranahan. Senator Dwayne Ankney. Marcy McLean in Billings, Montana. In, in Helena, Montana. Colstrip, Montana. Sydney, Montana. From Arley, Montana. And you are listening. You are listening. And you're listening to. And you are listening to Listen First. Listen First. Listen First. You are listening to the podcast Listen First Montana. Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. That's been the strength of this country since it was founded. It's what's made us great, right? It's not what's, um, what's held us back. And so for me, it, the, the mission is to try to find a way for us to help protect that legacy that allowed us to take people from all over the world that didn't have shared expectations, right? Didn't speak the same language, didn't, you know, did, didn't want the same outcomes always, and become one of the greatest countries in the history of the world, right? How do we protect that legacy moving forward? Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. Today I'm in Kalispell speaking to Frank Garner. Frank is currently serving his fourth term as state representative of House District 7. His professional background is primarily in policing and law enforcement, which includes a nine-year stint as chief of police in Kalispell in the late 90s and early 2000s. Today we'll hear Frank's thoughts on the current challenges and opportunities of police work, his experience as a police advisor in Afghanistan in the early 2000s, and his reflections on leadership, state politics, and the future of Montana. He is a graduate of the inaugural class of Leadership Montana back in 2005, and we're thrilled to have him on the show. Frank Garner, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to start, you're born and raised in Kalispell, now you represent this valley. I wonder if you could talk about what it was like growing up here. Well, I, I, I was raised here, not born. We actually moved okay. in the late um, 60s here, but you know, I... I went to school uh, out in uh, Evergreen, which is kind of a uh, neighboring community of Kalispell. And, of course, uh, went to high school and, and uh, raised my family here, um, worked my first career. If, if you look at my resume, it looks like I can't keep a job, but I, 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 I actually did. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing to um, have been able to be here live here, raise my family here. It's, it's a choice. Um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to be many places in the world and in this country, and, and I've always come back to here. So, you know, I, I can't think of a better place that, that I could be. So let's start, Frank. I'd love to hear the story. You mentioned the first part of your career looked like you couldn't hold a job, but then somehow you became police chief. So tell us that story. Get us up to becoming police chief. Well, it's, you know, it's, for me, it's, um, it's a, a great story of a local kid that was able to um, join his local police force and work his way up through the ranks to eventually um, serve as the police chief in this town. And uh, it, one of the reasons I got into that job was um, service. One of the others was um, because it gave me the opportunity to do something different every day. That was important to me. I wanted to deal with people. Uh, I wanted to uh, have challenges, I wanted to solve problems, and I wanted to have an opportunity um, every uh, few years to challenge myself in a different way. So policing did that for me. Um, you know, I, I started in patrol, I worked as a uh, drug team uh, officer, I was uh, uh, on the SWAT team, I worked as a detective and, and uh, as a patrol supervisor, and then uh, eventually as the chief of police. So I always jokingly say it sounds like I can't keep a job, but it, it really was an opportunity to improve myself professionally um, that was presented to me by that um, avocation. 
um, that uh, served me well, right, and and my uh, drives and my personality. So in 1997, you became police chief. How long was your tenure as chief? Um, It was about eight and a half years. Okay. What sticks out to you from that time? Uh, Really, you know, I think it was about uh, how we came together with our community to look to solve problems, right, and try to make this place a um, a, a better place for the community. Um, it was it, it's an effort, and I think it's so important in uh, agencies like police departments that they take direction from rather than give direction to the community. So we spent a lot of time. We um, did surveys. We did. We had a outside team come in, do an evaluation on our community and the department, make strategic recommendations, and we work through uh, a series of proposals with our team on the department and with people in the community to try to find ways to change the root causes of some of the bad things that we saw and results we saw in our community. And while, you know, they, they don't go away, you don't solve them all, you do empower people, right, it, to uh, make them feel like they have and, and see that they have the opportunity to change outcomes for themselves and for their community. It, you know, they, it can't be just sitting around waiting for somebody um, to do it. It's got to be uh, an issue of engagement between the, the people doing the work and the people receiving it. And so we, we worked hard to do that, and the people that I was blessed to work with on the department took it seriously and worked hard to try to do that, along with uh, many members of our community who um, regularly volunteered to come in and uh, work with us and share their ideas and, and uh, in, institute some of these programs and make changes that we um, I think collectively felt like gave us the opportunity to be more successful. Frank, it was 25 years ago that you became police chief. I'm fascinated with the roles and responsibilities of police officers and how that's changed over time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I, I think first let me, let me look at it in context of numbers to sure. begin with, right? Because those are pretty easy for us to wrap our head around. So tonight in Kalispell, city of over 20,000 people, there may be three or four police officers working. And so the question I often have for people is, how is it that three or four people can help police 25,000? And the, and the answer simply is because they let them, right? It's a matter of engagement. It's a matter of people um, having expectations about what they want their uh, community to look like. And these people, these police officers, are um, ones to help facilitate that. Right. It's it, it, it's only it only happens if people are engaged, if we agree on the mission and if they allow it. The unfortunate thing is over time at three o'clock in the morning when you pick up the phone, the one number you have to call um, for a lot of people, which is 911. Right. Or the only person that's out working at three o'clock in the morning is that police officer. So as a matter of necessity. We've taken those three or four people, and we've given them this huge plate of things that it's difficult to ask any one person to be the master of, right, and to effectively uh, deal with. And so I think there's a recognition, uh, both in policing and in communities, that there have to be additional tools available, um, right? Like in our community, we have uh, co-responders um, that uh, have specialized training in dealing people, dealing with people that have uh, mental and emotional issues, right? That can provide additional resources to them. Um, we have school resource officers, right? That specialize in and have specialized training in those relationships and how to deal with the parents, kids, teachers in that uh, environment. And we work with countless agencies and organizations, um, you know, government, nonprofit, church, um, private, in, in terms of trying to provide resources to people. 
And we've learned the hard way. We often can't jail our way out of these things, right? So it's back to trying to find those root causes, trying to deal with those um, rather than just have it be a, uh, a matter of crime and punishment that, you know, that can't be the only model. And I'm all about putting, you know, bad guys in jail when they need it. But uh, we, we have definitely learned that there, if we're going to be effective, we're going to have to have other tools in our toolbox. And we're going to have to ask um, other people with uh, specialized training and experiences to help those uh, officers effectively solve problems and manage these kinds of things if we're going to if we're going to have an impact on it and not just react to it. I'm imagining you having that conversation as police chief with the patrol officer and the patrol officer saying, you know, I'm struggling with all these different things that are demanded of me in my community. But what you're suggesting is we have to address some systematic issues in order to make that a more tenable position for these officers. But that's a long-term scope, right? So what does that leadership conversation look like when you're talking to that officer about the reality of the challenge that they face on a day-to-day? Well, and that's a good question, and, and one I've had to deal with, um, you know, in, in, in terms of what our organization and mission and execution looks like. And so here's, here's a good example, right? So after I was a police chief, one of the first things that I did was institute uh, zones for officers to work regularly. And so they'd be more familiar with those zones. People would be, um, they'd be more likely to solve the problem because they were more familiar with it rather than just um, working uh, all the way across the city and not necessarily, you know, ever seeing the same problem or, or people again, or, or at least for some time. So um, the the initial rollout wasn't as successful as I wanted to be. And part of the reason, one of the big reasons was I failed to recognize how important it was to give those people doing the work some voice and agency in what we were doing, right? God forbid they had a good idea, you know, to begin with. Um, and, And so organizationally, right, so this is definitely a leadership issue, um, you know, I, I had to learn how important it was to uh, incorporate those ideas, changes to the mission, um, into the expectations of the people that were doing the work. Because think about it, we for a hundred years, we did things kind of one way. You know, that people had a problem, they called the police, the police showed up, they, they dealt with it, and off we went, Right. And so now we were saying, hang on a minute, we're going we're gonna to do this a little differently, right? We're going to work harder on building relationships. We're going to work harder on trying to solve systematic problems, right, rather than just keep going back every time we get called. And we're going to tell people who culturally inside an organization had done things one way for 100 years, starting Tuesday, we're going to do things different, right? <laughs> oh, and by the way, we really forgot to kind of ask your opinion on it, right? You know, And so for me, uh, early on as a chief, that was an important lesson about, not and not just inside the agency, but inside the community, about how important it is for us to share a mission and vision and to learn from the, the people that are uh, receiving and giving the services about how important it is to shape what that looks like with them if you're going to be successful in organizational change. Obviously, over the last two years, policing is, and criminal justice has been a, a topic of real heated discussion in our communities across Montana and across the nation. I think if I had been in Leadership Montana with you, if we had been classmates and I had a relationship with you, I would have called you a dozen times in the summer of 2020 and said, help me understand, Frank, help me understand this discussion around this topic. So can you help us and leaders and listeners to this program understand? Yeah. Uh, yeah I think um, I, I can try a little bit, right? Sure. I mean, so in, in, in a few minutes to try to help you understand um, how we've kind of gotten to the place we have where we, you know, as a country, uh, when it comes to our expectations of policing, Right. We, we expect that I can pick up the phone and call you at any time. Right. 
and give you very little information, have you respond, help solve this problem. Probably one of the worst things that I've seen happen in my life, right, or that's ever happened to me as an individual. And um, and to do that, like in a, in a town like Kalispell, they're going to have 50,000, 60,000 calls a year. And we expect it to go perfectly every time. And for the people that respond to do it perfectly, right, and to respond individually and, and, and personally perfectly. And so it, it, it starts with, you know, the uh, ability for us to share a set of expectations, the, the community and the people involved that are realistic about what we, what we can do, what we should do, and what we shouldn't do. And, and certainly in policing, it's required um, us as a, as a culture to change our expectations, right? Because the community's expectations often have, have changed as well. And so you've, you've seen a realization that we, um, that we, we need them. We need them, you know, badly. Um, and, you know, when we pick up the, the phone and we call for help in one of life's emergencies, we want the people to show up to be we, it's, it's fair for them to have the expectation that they're going to respond professionally, that they're going to do the best job that they can, and that they're going to help us access the resources that we need to the degree that they can. That needs to be a, a shared expectation. And so as, as those of us in policing need to do a better job of, of communicating that and, and sharing that with our community and our communities need to have a better idea of what is possible and what their expectations are of people who work in these difficult situations and have to respond to these, you know, difficult calls, call after call after call that are unique and have different qualifications and and to try to be perfect every time is is a pretty difficult task. So I think one of the things we can do is do um, some of the work, continue to do some of the work that's already been done, right, and not have it have it be a closed culture, right? Engage communities, have them involved with us, see what um, kind of work needs to be done, what kind of extra tools we need to have to be successful, and to have a shared set of reasonable expectations um, about what that looks like because it's a pretty difficult job, right? It's um, definitely of all the work I've ever done, right? It's the most uh, difficult one I've, I've ever been involved with because it changes every day. It changes multiple times within a day. And when we um, ask those first responders to be our uh, Swiss, Swiss Army knife, it's, it's pretty important we give them good people, good training, good resources, and fair expectations. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's a shared mission uh, that most of us can agree on. Now we need to, to work collaborative, collaboratively more um, to try to make sure that's the, the outcomes we get. Because most people want to do a good job. Most, you know, most police officers want to um, serve their community. They're, they're doing it not because they, you know, think they're going to, um, be rewarded, you know, financially or otherwise. It's a, it's an issue of service, right? They want to serve their community, and so why why is it we find ourselves not being successful sometimes? And the answer is that um, it's it's in my view, it's often that our expectations were different, right? About either what is is possible or or what service needed to be delivered. And so I think we've got to get back to kind of that, and it's, a, you know, the, this is kind of the basis even of, of policing um, over a century ago here about why we started to look at um, a policing model that uh, looks like, or at least similar to the one that we have now. Um, not Not an occupying army, but a a community service organization that we asked to do really tough jobs, right? I mean, this this is the one 
um, organization, these, these people we have given the authority to, responsibility to, take a life when they have to, right? Outside of um, a courtroom or a, you know, a thoughtful process, right? They may be called upon tonight within seconds to have to make a um, decision that is life-changing for everyone involved, right? That is the level of responsibility we've given them. So the question I often ask is, have we given them the tools and resources to meet that expectation? And the answer is often, uh, particularly in rural America, the answer is often no, right? We, um, we, we haven't always provided them the opportunity to be successful in, in um, the, you know, these drastic uh, decisions that we've required them. We've placed them in the position of uh, having to deal with. So we, we've all got work to do to, to make this more successful. Our communities, our um, policing agencies, I'm, you know, I feel blessed that we have as many good people as, as we do, that even with all the noise um, that's been out there are going to show up to work today, try to do the best job that they can and try to help serve their community, right? So, you know, the, the, the news really is good, uh, even though we, uh, we can always do better. But, but we've got uh, people in our communities that are interested in making sure we have good outcomes, and we have people professionally working there who feel the same. After you finished up as police chief, you chose to spend a year working in Afghanistan. Can you tell us about that? Right, because, you know, in, in, in my family, my uh, sons and my, my brothers have all served uh, in the military and overseas. So I was, I was kind of the only slacker in the bunch, right? So I never, although I had interest early on in my life, um, you know, because I made a choice early to, to try to um, have a family, one I don't regret, of course, but um, I, I never had that opportunity. And so um, it was at a, I was at a point in my life where I said, hey, if I'm ever going to do some sort of overseas mission um, that I think has some value, this, this is my one opportunity. So I retired from the department and I went to Afghanistan uh, for a year to try to serve as a uh, police mentor to the Afghan National uh, Police Force. And, um, you know, obviously a completely different direction uh, in my life and, a, and a, a year I'm glad I spent. I think interestingly in the timeline is that you went to Afghanistan. Was it just on the heels, like immediately on the heels of having been in the inaugural class of Leadership Montana? Uh, it was, yeah. I think I was in 05, and so in uh, 07 I was in Afghanistan, right? And and um, I, I brought some of those tools uh, that I uh, was able to help uh, improve uh, through my, you know, study and work in Leadership Montana to uh, Afghanistan, to the organization I worked with, to the to the people I worked with, um, in an completely different environment than I'd ever uh, seen or dealt with before. So it was, um, you know, a, a, an incredible experience in many ways. Um, but certainly when you look at it from a, a leadership perspective, a uh, mentoring and coaching, it was the, the challenges that we had and had to overcome were ones I'd never had to deal with uh, before in, in my life. Um, but I, I think those are the kind of things that help improve you personally and professionally, those kind of challenges, right? When, um, when you go through them and, and come out the other side. And, and I, um, I was thankful that I had some of that additional, uh, time to kind of not just learn more about leadership through Leadership Montana, but to work on the practice of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that I uh, took some of those skills with me over there and that people that I work with um, benefited from them um, by 
my work and experience here. So, uh, I, and I'd like to think that when I came back, um, I, I benefited from that uh, experience and ability to grow and learn there. I guess that's the piece that's so, so interesting to me is these lessons of Leadership Montana. I mean, we think about them, I think, as we're going through the course as being applied in Montana with people who speak our language and have more or less a shared culture. But you all of a sudden go to Kabul and you're there trying to apply it in that context. So do these principles have staying power across that cultural line? Oh, absolutely. Right. Which and, one specifically? I well, I'd, I'd, I'd start with, you know, the the talk of gracious space, right? Providing the opportunity for us to be successful with each other, to learn from each other, right? To uh, to grow and have a conversation, right? So to, to begin with, just that principle alone does. But, you know, so much of it is about collaboration and relationships, right? That's, that's part of what we did in uh, Leadership Montana. It's what we continue to do. I still have those collaborations and, and uh, you know, shared missions with people that I um, met and, and worked with in Leadership Montana now many years later. Um, and those, those principles are the same in a place like Afghanistan where you don't speak the same language, where the people you're working with have, you know, unbelievable challenges um, that they're facing, and there's very little culturally that you share. And yet we found a way to um, work together to have uh, successful collaborations and relationships, right, based on some of the same principles that we use here, even with all those barriers. So some of those things are universal, um, and uh, I've been there and seen it. So I, I can I can share that they are right. They're not they're not necessarily unique to uh, Montana or the United States, right? They they are principles that make the the world go round. Um, even outside of Kalispell, Montana. So what year was it that you decided um, to run for House District 7? Um, so I, I, I think it was 2014, probably, when I when I first began to run, right? And, and so my, my first uh, session was 2015. Okay. Tell me about the decision to run. To me, it was just an extension of my public service. And, and I just found myself in that uh, position in my life where I felt like I had the time I could dedicate to it. I'd certainly seen the process before um, because of my previous public service, uh, whether it was in policing or through nonprofit organizations. And so I really wanted to have the opportunity to, to try to serve and see if I could help uh, solve problems and change outcomes at a um, at a legislative level. So um, it was, you know, just where I found myself in in my life in terms of what I thought I could do to help uh, improve our uh, lot in life as a as a community and and to help grow again personally and professionally. So four terms in, I wonder what, when you think about the biggest problem you solved or your proudest achievement in your tenure in the legislature, what would that be? Well, I, I think it's just the collaborations. I don't know if there's a single policy uh, thing, although we've, you know, we've, I've worked on some of the, I think, most important policy uh, projects we've had in the state. But I think the most important thing to me is our ability to collaborate, right? Not to be, um, you know, just set in stone ideologically, and to learn from people in terms of, of what their needs are and look for ways to solve problems and find solutions that we can agree on. And it's a difficult place to do it, right? So I'll just use the House as an example. We bring 100 people in uh, from all over the state, right, with different backgrounds, sets of ex expectations, different communities, and we do it for 90 days every two years, we're going to deal with over a thousand bills in those 90 days, right? What could go wrong? And, uh, you know, so your ability to uh, have to learn quickly, to collaborate, to communicate, um, all those things are um, 
are definitely heightened if, if you're going to go there to, to work and, and try to help uh, serve your community because the, the nature of, of what we do requires it and, and to, to try to successfully serve them. So I think just in general, it's the ability to collaborate and, and to learn that there are a lot of good people there that are trying to do the right thing. We might not necessarily agree on how to, but I think the, the people that come there and the ones that show up are want to do the right thing, are interested in serving their communities. And, and that's reassuring, right, as, a, as an individual to see so many people that care enough to put their lives aside to show up there and make these really hard decisions. I think from the outside looking in, I guess I'll just speak for myself and say that when I think about the ledge or just any governmental body, frankly, I mean, it could be the United States House and Senate. It's just, you know, folks that are marching to the orders of their party. How do you cut through that? Or is that a priority for you? Well, uh, I went with uh, talking about expectations, right? I went with a set of expectations that said um, – uh, conscience constituents caucus, right, in that order, in, in terms of my decision-making, right? First, I wasn't going to do anything that I, that I couldn't come back and look at myself in the mirror. And it's not that uh, every decision I made, right, because you vote over a thousand times every session uh, is perfect, but, I, you know, I wanted to, to uh, check that bo- box off first. And to me, it, it was first about serving my community and what their needs were. And... Um, you know, usually those aligned with uh, what my uh, w- what the goals of the party were um, that I belonged to, but um, sometimes it didn't. And when it didn't, um, I uh, chose another path. And sometimes that's difficult because uh, you know people want to um, you know have a uh, a set of values uh, that they espouse through that party process that that they want to try to achieve, but. Um, and I and I certainly tried to uh, work with my caucus um, whenever it was possible, but my community had to come first. And so, obviously, there's some notable exceptions in my uh, legislative uh, career that you get uh, pushback on, but that's part of what you have to expect as well, right? It's it's not you know it's the old saying is you know making sausage isn't isn't pretty. And that's, you know, kind of the way they refer to it, because that's what this looks like, right? You bring citizen legislators in for 90 days every two years, 30% of them are plus are brand new, um, have have never been uh, in this process before. You're going to vote over a thousand times on over, you know, consider over a thousand different uh, policy issues. So it's not going to be easy. Um, and so I think it it's important you walk in with expectations um, about uh, what you expect to do. And, and mine were those, right? And I was always going to serve my community first. It had to be in the best interest of my district. And I was going to try to serve them to the, de- the degree that I could um, uh, before uh, any other um, box could be checked. And, and I, I, you know, I hope at the end of it, um, that I tried to uh, accomplish that, right? That was, that was a, a thing I actually had written down in my desk uh, that I looked at regularly to remind myself of why I came there and, and uh, what I was trying to accomplish. What was written in your desk? What? The, those three things that I told mm. you, right? So, so, yeah, constituents caucus. Mm. So that when I was making uh, important decisions that I remembered where I came from. I want to ask you about a quote. Um, I'm just fascinated in all the forces swirling around politics in Montana, but politics broadly. Um, And there's a quote that I pulled from your social media that I thought was powerful. You said, the choice is yours. You get to decide which behaviors you want to reinforce with your vote or even your failure to vote. You can support those that try to succeed through name calling and falsehoods or you can support those of us who choose to discuss what we hope to accomplish and what we think we can do by working together. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that, that I've tried to do is help educate 
you know, people in my community about the process, right? Because they're, um, it's a, it's a full contact sport often, uh, you know, politics is, and it's, it's been that way for a long time. That's not necessarily new, right? And, and some of that, uh, is intended, um, for us to be, uh, to come out with, um, better decisions, right? It should be difficult, it should not be easy for me to go and vote to take something away, to restrict um, somehow what, what people are able to do or to use their money in, in some way. It should be difficult. Um, but unfortunately, there are a few people that probably take that a little bit too far, right? And they use tactics um, to put uh, pressure on people or to change outcomes, and so my, my statement was one to say, you know, to the people in the community is it really is your choice. You, you, you get the government that you vote for, right, and the, and the people. And so if you, if you want people that are going to try to make good decisions, collaborate, put their communities first, you have that choice and you get to make it. If you want people who are simply going to push the button they're told— you can have that too, right? It is your choice. And my choice was to be one of those people who tried to be an active listener, tried to um, serve his community, and tried to serve in a way that provided the ability for me to put my community first, or at least what I, I felt like based on the inputs that I had, um, you know, what they, what they needed. And so that the answer today is still the same. It is, it is a choice for people, right? It's an active choice. If you don't show up and vote, you're making a choice about what kind of government you get. Um, if you don't engage, get involved, um, you're making a choice about what kind of government you get. And when you look for people that are going to serve, you have a choice, right? And so you, you need to understand, we need to understand as communities, that that is a choice by our action or inaction that we are going to make for sure. You don't get it sit on the sidelines because not uh, engaging has an impact. Engaging has an impact. Frank, I want to shift to talk about Montana a little bit. What do you think is the, the biggest opportunity coming down the pike right now for Montana? Um, well, I think first it's it's about effectively managing growth, mm. right? Mon- Montana right now is, you know, experiencing um, an, an in-migration. And we, we could argue with the, the numbers, but I think if you look in the Flathead, for instance, the fact that we really um, don't have enough housing available for people, right? We, we just had a survey done by a company looking at uh, putting a new apartments into the community said it's the first time they've done a survey where they couldn't find a single available unit in their in their survey oh my goodness right yeah and so and it's not just about those people coming in from out of the area it's about our own communities our own people right I have I'm, I'm blessed to have all of my kids living inside the state right and they and they all have you know decent jobs but they're challenged on their ability to be able to find and afford housing in the state that they grew up in, right? Because of a, a number of factors. Um, but they're, you know, they're they're certainly in competition with that. Those those folks that are migrating here um, from other places. So you know, I mean, what what is it we hope for our children? Right, hope for our families, hope for our communities. What's what's on that checklist for us? And and obviously, it's more than just housing, but finding a way for us to to do that as we're changing demographically, right? As we age, as we you know, as we work on these challenges, and as we we try to provide workforce training, right? As our new generation comes up, and we have you know all new uh, industries and and, uh, you know, professionally, there are, uh, we're not 
meeting the demand. So finding a way to help make those two align more closely, right, so that they have opportunities, right? That's, I mean, in my world, that's all I've ever asked. Give me the opportunity to try to succeed, right, to try to be healthy, to try to meet those personal and professional expectations I have, and I'll do everything in my power to try to make that happen. And um, so I think we're going to be challenged um, now because right now we can't provide all those opportunities for them to meet their professional and personal expectations of people in our in our state. And, you know, that's going to be our, our, our challenge for a while. It's not going away next week or next month. Oh, my next question was uh, about priority number one, would you say, among the challenges we face. And it's interesting because I, I heard you just talk about housing, but I also hear you talking about combating the vitriol or just this what, you know, I think Leadership Montana would assert. I don't want to speak on behalf of the whole organization, but perhaps is, you know, how we speak to one another and how we connect with one another and listen and share perspectives. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, th- I think at the beginning of the day, it starts with our ability to uh, solve the problems that are in front of us and to live um, successfully w- with each other, right? I mean, I, th- I think it starts with our ability to do that because I think one of our challenges is we've, um, we've made it harder some days to do that, right? I mean, the, um, be- because of our relationships with each other. We've, we've made it harder, not e- easier. And I think that's one of the things we have to work on first before we can help solve what, what we know are these, um, you know, very important problems. And that's where I think that the existence of an organization like Leadership Montana is so critical because it's not just about the, the training and the principles. It's about the practice of leadership and what that leads to and and how we can be successful with each other in doing that and giving people the opportunity to take a break once in a while from getting the work done uh, every day to think about how they can improve themselves, their ability to work with influence and be influenced successfully by others to to work towards that kind of shared vision and mission that we we have uh, for each other, right? And and I think that's one of the places right now where we need to put a lot of grease, right? It it is it is definitely um, one of the issues that we are going to have to continue to improve on if we're going to be successful in all these other areas. So last question before I get you down that speed round, because we're running out of time here, is is you told me um, that we have been given a legacy to protect and enhance. And so I hear you looking back and looking forward. And so when you look back and think about the legacy that we've been given, I'm curious what you mean by that. And I'm also curious about when you say things like create a better world, you know, set ourselves up for success. What does a better world or a better Montana look like to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that that's one of the kind of core questions, right, about our, our life in general, right, is, is what does that look like? Because you certainly don't have to live in mine, and I don't have to live in yours, right, world, world entirely, or, or meet all of your expectations. It's not about that. It's about finding a way for us to be successful in our diversity, not afraid of it, right? Not, not to have to push ourselves all into the same mold, but in a, in a free country like we live in, right? We, I could live anywhere. I could live in another state if I wanted to. I could live in another country. I choose to live here. Um, and so that legacy is about protecting those things that are important to me and my values and being able to, to do that successfully while being able to live with you who may have a different set. That, that's been the strength of this country since it was founded. It's what's made us great, right? It's not what's 
um, what's held us back. And so for me, it, the, the mission is to try to find a way for us to help protect that legacy that allowed us to take people from all over the world that didn't have shared expectations, right? Didn't speak the same language, didn't, you know, did, didn't want the same outcomes always and become one of the greatest countries in the history of the world, right? How do we protect that legacy moving forward um, to, to say that we can show you we don't have to be, a, you know, a single religion. We don't have to be a, um, you know, a, a single uh, ethnic group. We don't have to be, um, we don't have to share every expectation for us to live uh, successfully together and to, to meet our, our personal goals. That's the legacy, I think, that made us great and that we need to try to find uh, a way to protect. And I, and I think one of the ways we do that is by learning how we lead, how we influence others, and how we're influenced by others' leadership so that we can um, be successful in pr protecting a legacy that's allowed us to live um, in one of the greatest history countries in the history of the world, right? That's the, the legacy I want to see us protect. Let's go to the lightning round. Let's start with a book recommendation. Uh, yeah, I, th I think uh, one of them is Leadership Principles of Genghis Khan. And, and as funny as that sounds, it's a great book that talks about, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek a little bit about some of the great principles of how people are influenced positively and negatively through leadership. A bold prediction for the future. Um, we are going to be successful uh, beyond people's expectations uh, as, a, as a country um, and, and as a state and in our communities. The most important thing you can teach your kids um, is to be themselves, to make themselves happy, right? To worry less about the expectations the world has for them and, and, and to try to meet um, and, and satisfy those uh, desires and wants they, they have. Something you love about Kalispell? The people. You have one day to do anything you want. It's a day off work. You can't work because I know you would probably say service. So what would you do? Um, I'd, I'd try to go find somebody who felt like they had no other um, – no other resource in the world available to them for a problem, and I try to help them solve it. Right? That's the greatest satisfaction I can get. How about a TV or a movie recommendation? Um, less of both. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I, I'd probably read more. I'd spend more time with you, <laughs> your, your friends. I'd stay away from social media and those, those, elect, you know, those electronic things more. That that'd be my recommendation. You haven't binged a TV show um, in the pandemic. Not, you know, I really haven't uh, as much. You. I'm I'm not. Yeah, I I I gotta tell you, I um, not that there aren't some good ones, and not that I don't spare. You know, do my uh, share of uh, screen watching, but I I really think uh, talking to your neighbors, you know, engaging in community service, spending time with your family. I think we need to get back to those things and away from, you know, electronic stuff more if we can. All right, road trip into Helena, or just road tripping in general, what's your food? What are you eating in the car? Um, it's a combination of popcorn and M&Ms. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, part of my health regimen. Which kind of M&Ms? The... Regular, right? So oh, not being a up. no, okay. yeah, Original. straight up. Got it. <laughs> Who do you look up to? Um, I I would say probably one of the people I I look up to most of my life is my wife, and uh, you know she is the the kind of person that has a heart for everybody. She finds good in everyone, 
Um, and, and that's a challenge I sometimes have. And um, she is one of the people that has kept me grounded in over 40 years of, of marriage in my life and that I'm still learning from. Last question. Something you care about deeply that we haven't talked about on this podcast. Um, what we're, we're going to look like um, as a community and a, and a country after I'm gone, mm. right? Not, not, not that the world revolves around me, but it's, it's back to that legacy question, right? You know, where we, did, did you leave it better than you found it? in your life, right? What, what did you do to help um, make it better for um, the, the, the people that aren't here? And, and I know this is more than 10 seconds, but it's, you know, Rotary, which is a group I've been uh, blessed to be involved with for uh, many years, talks about uh, planting the tree, trees that'll provide shade for people you'll never meet. Right. And, and so in my life, I guess that's what that'll be my quote. Right. It's the it's the ability to find ways to do things for people you will never meet, things that you will get no personal benefit from, but help you leave this world looking better than you you found it. So I, I think as much as anything, it's what am I doing to plant trees? to provide shade for people that I'll never meet. Frank Garner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks to Representative Frank Garner for taking the time to come on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to support Listen First Montana, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Another great way to support our show is to simply tell a friend about why you choose to listen. Small steps like that can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro is a rendition of the Montana State Song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.